Well, good morning, fellowship. <laughs> Welcome to our time of gathered worship. Isn't it nice to have power this week? Yeah? So if you missed it, last week we worshiped in the dark, so it's really nice to have lights. <laughs> uh, this morning in our time of gathered worship, we just want to welcome you here in this space, those of you who are joining us online. The invitation this morning is to bring our full selves to God, even as we within our own hearts and minds sometimes have competing values and desires. As we offer ourselves in worship of God this morning, we'll use the words of Psalm 86 as a prayer asking God to give us whole hearts surrendered to God alone. Would you stand and let's use the words on the screen this morning and speak them in unison and make this our prayer. Teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. Let's sing together.
good? Friends, I want to invite you into prayer with me, and I'll overview it so you can engage all the more wholeheartedly. Our prayer this morning is based on Psalm 19, and I'll offer some of its words and prayers on our behalf together. And then I'll invite you to turn your attention to some images on the screen, which will guide your silent prayers for a few moments. And then we'll conclude that with some words together on the screen and then repeat. So let's join in prayer together. Oh God, our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, today we join with the psalmist in saying that the heavens are telling the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of your hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. And today we acknowledge that the psalmist is right. This created world that we call home is the first great proof of how you are a God of goodness and of beauty and of truth. Your glory, O oh God, fills the earth, and all that you have made bears your mark. We pray that you would wake us up to the splendor that is all around us. Send special graces upon those who cannot see it or enjoy it. Please forgive us for all the ways that we neglect or harm it, and help us to do what we can for this, your beautiful world, to flourish. So now, Creator God, as we take in the images on the screen, please hear our prayers of gratitude, confession, and intercession. On behalf of the whole created world, O oh God, we pray. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. After reading the book of nature ever so carefully, the psalmist moves on to celebrate the book of scripture by saying that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The ordinances of the Lord are more precious than money and sweeter than honey. So today, O oh God, we pause to ask ourselves, do we love your word, your will, your ways? The psalmist is clear that your word, O oh God, is life. It's peace. It's joy. And we pray, therefore, O oh God, that your good order of things would be our heart's decision maker. And we pray for all the influencers of the world, including us, to trust your ways more than we trust our own. Guided again by the images on the screen, remind us, O oh God, of the true north and the healing balm of living your way in the world.
on behalf of ourselves, seeking to live your way in the world, O God, we pray. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And God, as we acknowledge that you have a design and a purpose for this world, the sad truth is that we humans ever so often miss the mark, live selfishly, fail to love our neighbors, and spoil the goodness that you have so freely given to us. Even as we are individually and collectively responsible for so much of the ill in our world, we turn our attention now to the war in Europe between Russia and Ukraine. As a corporate humanity, we confess to you, O oh God, that we are broken and we keep breaking things. For all the ways that these images now reveal, all the things they reveal about us and our world, and for all the ways that war ravages our hearts, our homes, our cities, and our nations. Please hear the silent groaning of our hearts. On behalf of those affected by all the wars raging anywhere in your world, O oh God, we pray. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We end our prayer with the psalmist asking, O oh God, that you would give us a Godward life by saying, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer, Today we recognize that throughout the kingdoms of earth, you, O oh Lord, have planted churches and people who are to be kingdom outposts, shining lights, grace sharers, and winsome truth tellers. When the church bells ring, when people pray in Jesus' name, when what's crooked seeks to be made straight, and when what is hurt finally looks to be healed. Please do, O oh God, what you do best. Be our rock and our redeemer. Guided one more time by the images on the screen, please hear our prayer for the gospel to go out to the ends of the earth and for it to be received as truly good news, for that is what it is. on behalf of your whole church on earth, O oh God, and for all who are not yet a part of it, we pray. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Friends, we're gonna continue in worship led by our bell choir ensemble, and they will be playing a song that is a Ukrainian hymn melody and the lyrics will be on the screen translated to English from Russian. Let's continue in worship together.
The peace of Christ be with you, Fellowship Church. We certainly long for peace for our world and peace for our souls. My name is Nate Skipper, and I'm one of the pastors here at Fellowship Church, where our mission is to love God and others as an accepting community centered in Christ and focused on developing faithful followers of Jesus. If you are new or if you're visiting with us this morning, welcome. We are glad that you're here. If you want to make yourself known to us, there are connection cards at the back of the sanctuary and at the Welcome Center that we uh, would be uh, privileged to know a little bit more about you. This next coming week, we uh, are asking for your prayers. As you'll see in the bulletin, uh, Pastor Ross and I get the opportunity to go stay at Camp Geneva as chaplains uh, this week, uh, and we're going to be working with some of the fellowship friends uh, here that are going to be going to camp this next coming week, and uh, among many others. Uh, really be praying for Pastor Ross because, you know, he has to uh, hang out with me uh, even more so than he normally does. So we're uh, going to be uh, enjoying that week there, and we're uh, asking for your prayers, uh, especially for our kiddos uh, who will be there with us, uh, and the numerous other kiddos that have been at Camp Geneva uh, all this summer, and other camps like Crand Hill and Camp Roger. In a couple of weeks, we as a church will be uh, continuing our partnership with Meet Up and Eat Up, uh, and that uh, is a program that serves uh, primarily uh, the site that we go to serves uh, migrant children uh, who are here uh, with their families uh, out at Pine Acres and we'll be doing some games and some skits and some fun stuff with the kids uh, and we'd love to have you join us uh, at that. Uh, there's a sign up there. It's just for an hour over lunch uh, Monday through Friday for a couple weeks. Please consider joining us. This bell ensemble this morning crushed it, first off, and we are grateful for them, uh, but we also uh, remind, reminded us uh, of the war that's going on in, in uh, Ukraine, uh, and just as a reminder to you, at our Easter offering, we were uh, collected uh, together, uh, our shared resources amounted to over $6,000 that we gave to our denomination's efforts. Uh, to house uh, many of uh, the refugees coming out of, of Uc Ukraine into Eastern Europe. And thankfully, there's a number of other churches that have done this, and the RCA's efforts and their mission partners there in Eastern Europe have actually uh, acquired, you might say, or temporarily acquired a camp, like a, a Christian camp, like Camp Geneva, and they're housing a number of Ukrainian refugees there. So we're grateful for uh, the work that's being done and for our shared efforts uh, to partner with the, the work and the, that mi the ministry that God's doing there. If you'd like to contribute to the ministry that God is doing in and through Fellowship Church, there are offering baskets at the back of the sanctuary, and uh, you can give online. Uh, these and many other ways are, are, these are just a couple of the ways in which Fellowship Church participates in God's reconciling work in this world. The kids at this time, uh, ages three through first grade, are invited, if they'd like to, to go see Miss Betsy in the atrium, and the rest of us will continue in a posture of worship as we uh, listen and sing together.
Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that we get to gather together for worship this morning, to join our voices with the billions of voices throughout the creation, um, to sing your praises, to declare your majesty, and to encounter your character in the songs that we sing, in the prayers that we pray, in the scriptures that we study. As we continue to worship this morning, we ask that you would open our eyes, that we would see, that you would open our ears, that we would hear, um, and that ultimately you would open our hands um, so that we can participate in the work that you have called us into. Bless our time in the word and help us to see you more clearly and to hear your voice more profoundly. In the name of Jesus Christ, we all pray. Amen. Good morning. My name is Tiara. I am one of the pastors here at Fellowship Church, if I have not yet met you. Um, and I am excited because we are in week eight, which I have to say, it's not a competition. This may be the longest sermon series I have ever experienced. <laughs> it's not a competition, but if it were, Fellowship would win. <laughs> uh, so this morning, uh, we are continuing in a series that we've been calling A Questionable Life. Uh, and that series has been essentially helping us to explore the questions uh, that we find in the scriptures, the existential questions, the, the big, exciting, scary questions, um, and some of the familiar questions that we encounter in the text. This morning's question comes to us from Mark chapter 10, if you want to begin making your way there. Uh, and it's essentially, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? What good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, we ask this question in different ways throughout our lives, and maybe not necessarily in an existential sort of way. Uh, maybe we think about goodness in kind of some more mundane ways. Uh, for instance, my mom tells me every time I move to a different city that she wants me to live in a good neighborhood. And some of you, I'm guessing, if your parents or, or your grandchildren, you, um, you think that you maybe want your children to have good friends. Or maybe, maybe you trust your children or your, your young adults to um, sleepovers in good homes. Or you hope to entrust your young adults to good colleges. Or some of you remember or are currently excited for the opportunity this fall to learn from a good teacher. Some of you were excited or maybe are excited to play with a good coach. Some of you are now the good supervisor or the good team leader that someone reports to. But what do we mean when we say that someone or something is good? What do we mean when we say that we ourselves are or aspire to be good people? And most importantly, what does God mean when he says to the saints at the end of their lives, well done, thy good and faithful servant? Today's question, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life, is asked to Jesus Christ. And he has some really interesting things to say in response, things that help us to understand what the good life, that is the life of faith, is all about. So hear the word of the Lord from Mark chapter 10, picking up in verse 17. 
And as Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not, uh, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And the man said to Jesus, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and then come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. There we go. <laughs> this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So our text begins with a guy, and context clues from later in the text seem to indicate that Jesus and his disciples knew just by looking at him that he was wealthy. And this wealthy man has somehow heard about Jesus such that he literally runs up to Jesus and falls to his knees before him. Out of great desperation and, and a posture of deep respect, bowing before Jesus, deep respect for Jesus, he asks, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, Matthew's account of Jesus' life records this exact same story, only Matthew asks the question a little bit more precisely. What good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, before we delve too deeply into today's question, I want to point out something, just one little detail that actually sets the tone for what we're studying today. Because the rich young ruler ascribes an attribute to Jesus. He calls him good. And the text doesn't say why he calls Jesus good. We're left to assume that he notices something remarkable about Jesus' life or maybe Jesus' teaching, hence good teacher. Uh, enough, though, to bow before him as he asks one of life's biggest questions, which is a pretty peculiar way to ask a question. I'm guessing most of you, when you have a question for a coworker or a classmate, you don't pop over and kneel before them before you ask the question, right? It's kind of a weird way to begin a question. And Jesus' response to him is even more remarkable. And Jesus says back to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, some of you are remembering your catechism and thinking, wait, did Jesus just say that he's somehow not God? And the short answer is no. Rather, what Jesus is doing, quite brilliantly, I might add, is pointing to, pointing away from humanity, um, away from the individual, away from even our fellow um, human beings who inhabit creation with us, pointing away from humanity and toward the source and standard for goodness, our triune God. The scriptures testify as much that our triune God is good. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good, the psalmist says. And not just of good, but abundantly good, the psalmist says. The very source of all the good experienced by creatures, James says. The bestower of generous goodness, even on those that we don't think deserve it, Jesus himself says in Matthew. The one who creates good things, but also declares what is good, the creation account in Genesis 1 tells us. And therefore is not only the standard for measuring what is good, but also instructs us through his scriptures, through his law, how to participate in his goodness. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. Jesus looks into the face of the man kneeling before him and says to him that it is only our triune God alone who is the source and standard of goodness. 
we often think of goodness in terms of our own character, and, and there's, that's, a, that's a really good thing because character matters. Uh, we sometimes think of good um, and goodness in terms of deeds, um, like this guy, what good deeds must I do to inherit eternal life? And that's significant too because our actions matter. And yet, Jesus tells us, that if we want to understand what goodness is or what goodness means, that we must first look not at ourselves, but to God. We look to our triune God to understand what goodness means. But he doesn't stop there. Jesus continues, you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Now, where have you heard this list before? Yeah. Ten Commandments, if you guess that, you get 10,000 fellowship points redeemable for coffee in the lobby, uh, or water, or water. Uh, <laughs> so someone runs toward Jesus. I mean, this is kind of mind-blowing. Someone runs toward Jesus, kneels before him, and asks, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus looks into this man's desperate face and reminds him of the Ten Commandments. That's kind of puzzling when you think about it. It's a little anticlimactic when you think about it. Like, is this merely a rhetorical device? Like, is Jesus making fun of the guy? Is Jesus being flippant? And why does Jesus only offer him six of the Ten Commandments? The commandments governing interactions between human beings. Why doesn't Jesus offer the first four commandments? They come first in the order. They're related to his relationship with God. He is asking about eternal life, right? Why does Jesus give him a truncated list of the Ten Commandments? What exactly is Jesus doing here? Well, I think Jesus is doing a couple of things. First, I think Jesus is reminding him and us of the significance of God's instructions to us. Remember, Jesus says that he doesn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And that anyone who sets aside even one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But Paul says, we're free from the law. In Romans 7, we are free from the law. So how do you hold both of those things together? It seems that the scriptures still have a great deal to teach us about a better way to live, about the flourishing that God wants for us and creation through us. One of the many gifts of the Reformation was a pretty brilliant and refreshing way to think about the law in relationship to the life of faith. It seems that there are three different kinds of laws that we find in the scriptures, primarily in the Old Testament. Uh, the civic laws uh, that God's people lived by when they were their own political entity or nation. Uh, and then you've got the ceremonial laws, which, God, which kind of governed God's people's um, worship gatherings like this one. And then thirdly, there were the moral laws by which God's people discovered God's character and his purposes for creation and his purposes for humanity. Reformers like John Calvin and St. Paul before him uh, taught that because of Christ's victory on the cross, the law is no longer a staunch enforcement officer judging us or condemning us, uh, condemning those who follow Christ, nor are we saved through obedience to the, to the law. Rather, for those who follow Christ, the scriptures teach us what pleases God so that we can participate in God's good purposes for us, for our relationships, and for creation. So in response to the question, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? The first thing Jesus does is invite our very desperate friend to simple obedience. Why? Because it's through simple obedience to what has been revealed in the scriptures that we learn the way to a life of flourishing for us 
and through us. But the rich young ruler, very gently, very timidly, kind of stammers out to Jesus, teacher, all these rules I have kept since I was a kid. So if you're tracking with me, we realize that our friend is not only wealthy, but he's also very devout. He's the guy who follows all the rules. He's the guy that never breaks the Sabbath. He's the guy who's faithfully at the synagogue every week. He's the guy who doesn't sample grapes before purchasing them at Meijer. He's the guy, <laughs> grapes are expensive. You gotta try one. <laughs> He's the guy that doesn't zipper merge in construction zones. He's the guy that never swears when the lions blow it at the end of the game. Which game? Pick one. Uh, he's the guy <laughs> who's been following all the rules since he was a kid. And yet, something's missing. Something's missing. And he names it for Jesus. Something is missing. I caught a modern take on this encounter with Jesus in an episode of a show I've mentioned here before, a show called The Good Place. It is one of my favorite shows, and by favorite, I mean what I mean by all of my favorite shows, which is that I got super excited about it, I binged it, and then I got distracted and I never finished it, so don't spoil it if you've seen the fourth season, but, <laughs> uh, but the show starts uh, out with Kristen Bell's character, Eleanor, waking up in The Good Place. And um, what she learns, and um, the reason that she's in the good place is because supposedly she has enough points to be in the good place. See, the good place um, is based on an accounting system in which you are awarded points for doing good deeds and you're deducted points for doing naughty deeds. Uh, and what we also discover in the very first episode is that on the, um, on the wall, there is a picture of a guy named Doug Forsett. And what we learn about Doug, um, he's not in the good place. He's actually still inhabiting Earth, but his picture is on the wall of the good place because he... Um, discovered something. Uh, so one night he was hanging out with his friends and he discovered magical mushrooms. And while he was enjoying those magical mushrooms, uh, he kind of just like guessed 92% of how the point system worked. Um, and it completely changed his life. Like he stopped enjoying magical mushrooms. He totally turns his life around. By the time we discover him in season three of the show, he's living off the grid. Uh, he only eats what he can sustainably grow, so like lentils and radishes. Uh, he operates on the snails that he accidentally steps on and like nurses them back to health. Uh, he allows himself to be pushed around by wayward ewes and mauled by stray dogs that wander onto his property. Now he even drinks only the water that he distills from his own urine. Um, so, <laughs> so he's like extremely obsessed with doing the best thing for himself, doing the best thing for creation, doing the best thing for the people around him, not hurting anyone at all. Uh, Doug is the one person who has figured out how the good place works and how the bad place works, and he's miserable. Why is he miserable? Because he spends his entire life consumed by the thought of getting enough points to get into the good place. Ironically, this episode is called uh, Don't Let the Good Life Pass You By because even the writers of a show like The Good Place come to the wise conclusion that while, while doing life and doing life well isn't less than doing the right thing, it is certainly more than that. It's certainly more than doing the right thing. Doug Forsett finds himself in familiar company with the rich young ruler who has kept the commandments since he was a child. And yet he finds himself restless and aimless and bored, which isn't necessarily a bad thing because restlessness is often an indicator that something is missing from our faith lives. What's missing? 
He's not sure, but it keeps him up at night and nags him until he hears about this teacher who's come to town, who's healing people all over the countryside, who's opening up the scriptures and helping people discover God's character, who is teaching about this thing called the kingdom of God. And our guy intuits that this teacher might have a cure for his restlessness, only to discover that according to the brilliant good teacher, all that he should do is simply follow the rules. And so he gently tells Jesus that this is precisely what he's been doing his entire life. And this oddly pleases Jesus. The text says that Jesus looks at him. Jesus, uh, he weighs his character is what the, what the language indicates. Jesus weighs his character. He considers him. And Jesus loves him for what he sees. In fact, this is the only time in Mark's gospel that Jesus has said to have loved someone. Why? Um, I would guess for two reasons. One, because maybe he's actually not a hypocrite. Maybe he's actually sincere and Jesus loves his earnestness. Or maybe, maybe because he's actually ready, he's noticing the boredom and he, he actually sees it as an opportunity to go deeper in his faith journey. And Jesus sees his readiness and he loves him for it. Which is why I don't think Jesus is merely toying with him when he says, one thing you lack, go and sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come follow me. I think Jesus sees his restlessness, his aimlessness, his boredom, and he extends a radical invitation to this guy to go deeper in his faith journey. One that would have made his knees buckle had he been standing on his feet in the first place. And it's a pretty peculiar invitation because nowhere in the scriptures, if you recall, are God's people commanded to sell everything they have and give it away to the poor. Care for the poor, yes. Care for widows, yes. Care for orphans, yes. But sell everything you have, that's not written anywhere. Yet Jesus tells this guy to give away everything. But before we get stuck there, know that this isn't exactly the point of what Jesus is saying. Uh, In fact, um, after this moment, the rest of the disciples describe how they gave up everything to follow Jesus. Uh, And Jesus reminds them that giving up the point is not, giving up everything is not the central point. Um, In fact, the climax of Jesus' invitation is the invitation to come follow me. It's the last thing in the sentence, come follow me. And again, that requires nothing less than simple obedience, but definitely something much more radical than merely keeping the commandments. Radical discipleship is going beyond merely obedience to the commandments through to sacrificial love of God and our neighbors in God. Simple obedience honors the law, but radical discipleship seeks the heart of the lawgiver. Jesus invites him to not merely obey then the six commandments of the law that exhort God's people to refrain from sinning against one another, but to go through and above the law through to a sacrificial love of neighbor. And rather than inviting him to merely obey the first four commandments of the law that exhort God's people to worship God alone, he's invited to go above and beyond the law through to a sacrificial love of God and come Follow me, leave everything behind and come, follow me, Jesus says. Jesus offers this man the same familiar invitation that he extends to all of his disciples. You've heard that language before. Come, follow me, drop your nets, come, follow me, Jesus says. Bored out of his mind, spiritually restless, no sense of divine purpose beyond going through the motions from day to day. And yet when the offer to join, the movement that literally changes the world comes to him, 
he sort of prefers his own boredom and restlessness over the adventure of a lifetime. Sure, this invitation to radical discipleship will turn his life upside down. Sure, it will cost him something, perhaps his, his wealth or his life or his schedule or his priorities or, or his, his work or his sports teams or his comfort or his security or probably most significantly for him, his control. But ultimately, it's an invitation that promises the very cure for his spiritual boredom that he so desperately wants. Nonetheless, he quickly realizes that he can't quite relinquish the things that are holding him back. And so he literally lets the good life pass him by. His boredom hardens into just all-out apathy and perhaps even a little bit of regret in a matter of seconds. Disheartened by the saying, our text says, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. In response to the question, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life, our Christ calls this man and us to simple obedience, but also to radical discipleship. Both simple obedience and radical discipleship necessitate, I think, the studying of the scriptures, because that is the primary place where we learn who God is, what his character is like, and discern God's invitations to us in our own time. Meditating on the scriptures and applying them to our lives is one of the most effective catalysts for growing our faith um, in any stage of the Christian journey. Um, I, I was just recently rereading a book in which they surveyed something like a thousand churches, um, 1,007 to be precise, um, of all the different faith practices that are the most impactful in the life of faith. And they were looking at it across this continuum of, of like early faith, you know, when you first come to Christ, all the way up to like mature faith or gray-haired faith. And what they discovered was um, throughout all of those life stages, all of those phases of the faith, one of the most, and um, the only one that appeared, the only behavior that appeared in all of the stages for as a catalyst for growth was reflection on the scriptures. Calvin said that as well in the quote that I, I put up earlier, that um, none of us ever get too wise to come back to the scriptures every single day to learn what it is um, that God wants to teach us about himself um, and about us and about how we are to participate in his, um, in his own goodness. But we also look to the scriptures to help us learn what pleases God. Which brings me to the second and final point. Both simple, and, simple obedience and radical discipleship are powered by love and culminate in love. I think this is where the rich young ruler erred and where we might err as well. Because over, over um, the course of our lives, what we're aiming at is not just simple access to the good place. We're not just looking to collect enough points to get into the good place. We're actually aiming at eternity with God. And eternity with God is supposed to be a place that we actually enjoy and we're taught to enjoy it through the relationship that we begin to build with God here and now on earth. Here's what I mean by that. I lived in a pretty strict household as a kid. I mean, it was just me and my parents, so I couldn't get away with anything. I tried. Uh, <laughs> but I was actually pretty close to my dad growing up and still am. And so when my dad watched action movies, so did I. Die Hard and Terminator 2 were my first movies as a kid, much to my mother's chagrin. Uh, I was like five. <laughs> uh, and when my dad watched basketball and cheered for the Lakers, so did I. Uh, and when my dad built a deck on the back of our house, I joined him in building a deck onto the back of our house. 
Uh, and when my dad got sick and he would, um, his nose would run and he would stuff tissues up his nose, I thought that's a great strategy to not like have, you know, to blow your nose. I would put tissues up my nose, which is a mistake because the tissues got stuck because my nose was like really tiny as a kid and it's a whole big thing. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, so, and when I noticed that my dad enjoyed studying the scriptures more than for crafting sermons, and I would find him sitting somewhere in the house studying his scriptures, I would grab my little kid Bible eventually my teen Bible, and I would go find him, and I would sit in a quiet chair in the same room, and I would study them too. I could have kept the rules growing up and would have turned out just fine, and my parents wouldn't have loved me any less um, anyway. But going the distance meant also discovering what brought delight to my parents and joining them in it. And for my parents, it also it meant discovering what genuinely delighted me and joining me in those things. It's the point where the transformation of the relationship happens and you go from being mother-daughter or mother-father-daughter to family and friends even, and friends over the long haul of a life together, not just the time when you're living in your parents' house. Something happens when we go beyond the rules and beyond merely the enforcement of the rules and it shapes our relationships. It not only shapes our relationship, but it also shapes our trajectory in life. And that's similar to the life of faith. We're not only invited to honor the commandments, but to discover what God loves and to joyfully join him in it. So goodness then is not just about the strength of our moral character, but loving what God loves and participating in what God loves, which is why ultimately goodness is about love. It's the love of God that has been poured out into our own hearts that helps us to trust him even when we don't understand that enables us to love and delight in what God loves, that compels us to sacrificially love God and neighbor, and that helps us ultimately to actually desire eternity with God for God's own sake and to truly enjoy it when we enter it, which is why the primary invitation to our devout but desperate and bored friend and even to us in our own spiritual boredom is a step deeper into the kind of loving friendship with God both now and into eternity with him. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the words of your scriptures that teach us not only who you are, but the kind of God you are, the kind of Father you are, that we are invited not to stare at ourselves in hopeless shame and guilt, constantly examining our own moral character, but to look to you to understand what goodness is and to follow after you. And that in doing so, we discover what pleases you, we discover what delights you, and we become participants in that, not only for our own sake, but for the sake of the world and for a deeper and more loving and more trusting relationship with you. Grant that every single day we may be reminded of your truth, that we may live your truth, and that we may fall deeper and deeper in love with you. In the name of Jesus Christ, we all pray. Amen. In our response this morning, what holds us back from full participation in what God loves? What holds us back from sacrificial love of God and neighbor in ways that reflect God's coming kingdom? As we consider this and as we allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us, may our posture in prayer be to surrender all to Jesus. Would you stand and let's sing together.
brothers and sisters in Christ, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.